0: And I want to address Esther today because it ties in so well with the sermons I've given the last two weeks. Uh, and we'll see that before we get through it. Now let's understand, let's see, did you, do you have some articles there? Uh, could you send those up please? So I don't forget them. Some articles uh, regarding Purim and and some of the things about it that someone researched for me, and I do appreciate it. But when I gave a sermon on Esther some years ago, when we started uh, acknowledging Purim as being something important, uh, I kind of tied it to the church, and I'd like to do that again and perhaps a little bit different slant uh, with increased understanding. I think I mentioned then that uh, the king uh, could have represented God the Father, but I don't know that that is really the case. The story is that uh, the king had a wife, and he wanted to show her off to the satraps and uh, rulers of all the different areas uh, as he was having a feast. And she turned him down, wouldn't obey and come and show herself before all the rulers of all the different areas. So, it was recommended that she be deposed because she would not obey her husband, and that would be a bad example to the rest of the 120 provinces in uh, the king Ahasuerus' jurisdiction because he ruled from Mesopotamia clear over to India. And uh, I said, you can't have that kind of disrespect for your husband. So he said, okay, I'll get rid of the queen. So he set her aside and would never see her again. Uh, Then they began the search for a new bride, a new queen, if you will, for the king. And I think that this ties very well with the church in that... Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And they were searching for a wife for the king. Now, as we understand other scriptures, Christ is the king, and he is going to marry the bride in his return. So, he is the one seeking a wife, not the father. So, I think in this case, probably Christ represents King Ahasuerus here in this story. And... Vashti would represent, I think, worldwide, if we apply this principle to the church, because Vashti, or worldwide, began to depart from God and began not to follow the things of God with the kind of commitment and love and concern and obedience that God or Christ would want of his bride. So he spewed her out, or as I said last week, disfellowshipped her, and began a search for a new queen. And there are many, many candidates to be considered, because there are upwards of, as we read in the announcements, 400 different organizations. Nobody, One knows really how many splits there are, but it's been enumerated along those lines. So they brought young ladies from all over, and all the church splits today are young ladies, they haven't been around that long, uh, to begin to determine who Christ would work with as the basis for his bride. Uh, This becomes a very important thing. Uh, I want to turn back for a moment to Proverbs 31 and show that he has got a process going on. Uh, We all are quite familiar with uh, this particular passage. In fact, I think Gordon read it to us not too long ago, a little different viewpoint. But here it talks about the virtuous woman. Now, King Ahasuerus had found that his wife Vashti was not uh, virtuous in some respects, and had therefore put her away. So he began a search... For a truly virtuous woman, one with the right attitude, the right spirit, who would follow her husband's desires. So he starts in verse 10. Who can find a virtuous woman? For her price is far above rubies. Very, very hard to find someone that fits what Christ is looking for. The heart of her husband does safely trust in her so that he has no need of spoil. So Christ, is king, is looking for a bride that can be trusted throughout all eternity to take care of business the way he wants it conducted. She will do him good and not evil all the days of her life. Her whole mind, her whole approach, her whole attitude will be to serve him and do good for him and to help him in any way she can. She seeks wool and flax and works willingly with her hands. She's not lazy. Uh, She works hard and with a willing spirit. She is like the merchant ship. She brings her food from afar. So, she's willing to do whatever is necessary to be sure that good is provided. She rises also while it is yet night and gives food to her household and a portion to her maidens. So she works night and day tirelessly to do her job. And I think there could be a spiritual overtone here uh, that while it is still dark, while the church is still in darkness as to what is going on and what God is going to do, remember in these emails I just read, some of the comments were that this is information that no one has. The other organizations don't know the story of how God is going to deliver the church and what He's going to do. So, the virtuous one will rise while it's still dark, while nobody understands, and begin to work and to provide even while it is still dark. She considers a field and buys it. Uh, She has that authority. Some... Men don't want women to have brains or ability to buy a field or to do that kind of thing. But this woman is able to buy a field. Uh, We bought one, didn't we? And with the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She girds her loins with strength and strengthens her arms. That's one of the things that God tells the church at the end time that He begins to work with, is to be strong and of good courage Uh, and to work. She perceives that her merchandise is good. Her candle goes not out by night. She knows that the things she has learned are good. They cannot be disputed. Those things are going to happen. She lays her hand to the spindle, and her hands hold the distaff. In other words, she knows that what she has is right, and it is good, and she is willing to work to bring that about. Notice verse 20, in light of Isaiah 58 and some of the scriptures we've been reading. She, is, uh, she stretches out her hand to the poor. Yes, she reaches forth her hands to the needy. So, a woman who will be virtuous, that will be qualified to be the bride of Christ, stretches her hand to the poor, helps the needy, Uh, just as he says in many scriptures, to help the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the poor, and so on. So it's a very important part of being a virtuous bride of Christ. And if we learn a way to outreach people in a direct way that is directly related to God's church and God's people, I think there is a responsibility there, if we're to be virtuous, to do just what verse 20 says. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. He even tells the virtuous woman to pray that she be accounted worthy and to pray that her flight not occur in inclement weather or winter or on the Sabbath. Kind of similar language here. She makes herself coverings of tapestry. Her clothing is silk and purple. So she dons the garments of righteousness and of uh, not only of righteousness but of kingship, rulership, queenship as the bride of Christ to be. Uh, She's known in the gates when her husband sits among the elders of the land. So there's going to come a time when uh, Christ's bride becomes very evident to those in the gates who are around to observe. She makes fine linen and settled and sells it and delivers girdles to the merchant. So she is providing a commodity, a need, a service. Strength and honor are her clothing, and she shall rejoice in time to come. Not immediately, maybe, but in time to come. So she shows strength and she shows honor. And I didn't think of this, but when I wrote to Braddock's, uh, that is what i wanted to uh, seek was that we do things honorably that we not poach or try to pull from or to discredit or deny another man's flock if they indeed see what we are doing and they want to change affiliation that's fine but we're not there to raid it and i did not contact them they contacted us okay Initially, and I was even slow in response, until I checked them out to see if they truly were part of the Church of God. And I think you can see from what I read to you that they are very much a part of the Church of God. She will rejoice in time to come, so there will come a time when uh, God will begin to bless her and she can rejoice. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and in her tongue is the law of kindness. So, we are not here to indict, we are not here to accuse, that's Satan's job. We are here to be kind, to be gentle with people, and open our mouth with wisdom of the things of God, so that they might understand. She looks well to the ways of her household, and eats not the bread of idleness. So, she's busy and stays at work, and makes sure things are taken care of. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. So, there is one that is going to rise to this occasion. And I would hope that we can be part of that. Uh, I see some things we're doing and some things we're just starting to do here in verse 20 uh, that I hope put us in that category before this is over and we can be included in this. Many daughters have done virtuously... But you excel them all. I'm sure that many beautiful young women were brought before King Ahasuerus, but Esther stood out among them all. And it's interesting that she did not use all the tricks of the trade of being beautiful that some of the others used. She just put on the attire that the eunuch or chamberlain of the, of the women gave her and went in her natural state and her natural beauty and attitude shone forth before the king. So God is not looking for anything fake, anything tinsel, anything made up. He is looking for pure, clean beauty from those who adhere to His truths and it is a natural beauty then. So He says, this one will excel them all. I would hope that we could be zealous enough, committed enough, strong enough that we would impress God, that He would want to use us. Then he says, Favor is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the eternal, she shall be praised. And Esther, I think, took that approach, her natural, pure beauty and attitude, Shown out, not uh, trying to uh, artificially look beautiful. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her own works praise her in the gates. So there is the standard that Christ basically sets forth for his bride, a standard that we need to, in every way we can, live up to. And it is a very difficult thing to do for us. But... King Ahasuerus was looking for the same thing in Esther. Uh, I find it interesting that uh, in chapter 2 and verse 7 of Esther, uh, it is mentioned again that she did not have a father and mother, and Mordecai had taken her in as his adopted daughter. he be taken in by the king and taken care of. Now, hasn't God, however you want to put it, disfellowshipped us, scattered us, spewed us, or made us orphans without a mother. And Paul makes it very clear in the book of Galatians that Jerusalem above, the spiritual Jerusalem, the church, is the mother of us all. So he destroyed our mother. In fact, there is a scripture that says that exactly. I will destroy your mother. Is it Jeremiah? I forget exactly where it is, but it just came to mind. And our mother, the church, has been destroyed. So we are orphans in that sense. And we represent the bride-to-be, that would be Esther, Christ. I think Mordecai, if you see the story, was powerless. In other words, he saw the power of the king. He saw that his orphan-adopted daughter had the beauty and perhaps could influence the king to be his wife. But he could only advise, he could only guide her and lead her in her relationship to the king. He couldn't go into the king and say, you must choose my adopted daughter to be your wife. He did not have the capacity, the power, the ability to do that. He could only advise and guide her and lead her in her attitude, in her approach, and even to hide her identity, which she did as a Jew, because that could have been uh, a strike against her that would have destroyed the whole thing in the first place. So she didn't advertise who she was, and I don't think we, as part of God's church, need to be out here advertising, hey, we're the, we're the ones. Uh, there's vanity, ego, and, and everything else involved in that that should not be there. We are only candidates, as Esther was, Okay? And hopefully, if we can have purity and beauty uh, that is genuine, then we can be chosen to be part of that bride and perhaps even to be the one that God works through or the daughter He works through that excels them all. I would, would hope we could. Now, there might be other groups who, if they read this and understood it, would hope they could. But you have to apply it to yourself. You can't apply it to everybody else. If you understand it, then you have to try to live up to what God says, okay? Okay? So it's not wrong for us to say, we're a candidate, I hope we're a leading candidate. I hope we can do this thing. That's not vanity and ego, that's committing yourself to try to do and live up to the standards of God. And we have that to do. Now, Mordecai, I think, then, was in the position, perhaps, of leadership of the church here in the end. Uh, As I've explained before in sermons on government, the church never... Should have put itself in the position of inline authority from God down. Now, Worldwide used to make that chart where it was God the Father, and then Christ, and then Herbert Armstrong the Apostle, and then the evangelists, and the pastors, and the elders, and then the rest of us. A direct line of authority to the top. Now, that is wrong. It always was wrong. Since the veil of the temple was rent, every member of the church has direct access to the Father through the Son. They do not have to go through the church or the ministry at all. You can pray to God the Father at any time, from any place, directly through Christ's authority. Now then, where does the church stand? If you were to have a true, proper organizational chart, you have the Father and the Son, and then you have a direct line down to every member, because they all have direct access to the Father. Well, then what is the church's view, or what is her position? It is that of the mother, as Paul says. Jerusalem from above, which Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 shows us, is the church. What is a mother's function? Is she ever to stand in a direct line between the children and the father? No. All children in a physical family should always have access to their father anytime they want it. The mother should never say, No, you have to go through me to get to your dad. That would create a blockage in the relationship of the children to their father. So the church's position is, in a sense, to the side. She is there to help point the children to the father, to help them in their relationship with the father. That is the church's responsibility. You have direct access to the father, but the church is here to teach you more about the father to teach you what the relationship should be, and to help open up so that you can have a better relationship with our Father in heaven. So the church does not in any way stand in the line of authority from the Father, the Son, down to the children. Never, ever. And I've taught that in the past. But let's understand what the function of the church really is and what Esther's function was, and therefore we can understand Mordecai. He was there to try to help Esther's relationship with the king and to help her become queen. Now, aren't the physical leaders of the church here today to help the church in the relationship with the father and the son and to help them become queen and the bride of Christ? That is the function of the ministry or the organized part of the church today. Now, we will not get into all the scriptures about the authority and the power that God has given so that that may be done. But that is the organizational structure as God has set it up correctly. And it does not fit what worldwide taught for so many, many years. That way, the minister could get there and say, well, you can't go to headquarters. Uh, You've got to come through me. No. You can go to headquarters any day you want. Headquarters of the entire universe. And I hope do every day. And I'm here to read God's Word to you and help instruct you in how to make that work better. That's why we read the Bible constantly and consistently in our church services. So I think that was Mordecai's function. He was there to help her become queen, just as we're here to help you become bride. And there may be some correlation between Mordecai and Zerubbabel or between Mordecai and the two witnesses. In other words, the leadership that was there to help. Haman, on the other hand, was the enemy. He was there to divide, to confuse, to uh, spread ill repute and distrust. Uh, to divide and conquer, and to destroy that which God was seeking to build. Now, Haman was doing something that is satanic. In other words, who is the accuser of the brethren? Who is the author of confusion? It is Satan. So, in Worldwide, we had a situation where God had provided us a king, a counselor, a leader, as Micah 4 clearly explains. And then it says, Is your counselor not perished? Or your king perished? Your counselor is dead. Herbert Armstrong died and left us without proper leadership to help point us to the king. So we went into confusion and Satan, I think, was put in charge of that, just as he was put in charge of taking care of Job and helping change his attitude. Now, going back to the uh, sermon from last week, using the analogy of disfellowship. God disfellowshipped the church. Now, when you disfellowship, Paul made it very clear in 1 Corinthians 5, and I read it, but I didn't comment, I think, quite like this. It is to turn that individual over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit might ultimately be saved. Did not God turn us, the church, over to Satan for destruction? And did not it begin to be divided and distrust to come and confusion and war and animosity between groups and between people, accusations that flew back and forth and trying to destroy trust wherever possible? The Tkachas did that, and I think they were in that sense a... Uh, a type of Haman, but others did it also. And now Tkachas are completely out of the picture, and still within the organizations, you have those who would seek to cause distrust in the leadership, who would cause division, who would cause confusion, who would dwell on the negative, which is what Haman did, instead of dwelling on the positive and trying to build. Herbert Armstrong, uh, Ezekiel 17 shows, was a powerful and strong leader in God's church, but there he, and he had a proper message for God's people, or people who became God's people, of truth. He didn't have all truth. Uh, much has been learned since, but he had the basics of the truth of God. But Ezekiel shows that the roots of the vine instead of a tree would turn to him. This created problems because Herbert Armstrong, being a strong leader who had the truth of God, some people began to think too highly of Herbert Armstrong and everything the apostle says is the breathed word of God and there can be nothing wrong with Herbert Armstrong. So people began to idolize him. Now, that is one way of getting your eyes off the message and on the messenger. It can be, in a sense, a positive thing where they look up to the leader, but they put too much emphasis on the human leader and not enough on the message. And this creates problems. On the other hand, you have those who begin to forget the message and begin to look for errors and faults in the messenger. This also creates problems. The moment you take your mind off the message and begin to either put the messenger on too high a level or on too low a level, you are headed for trouble. You must follow the message. Any time you begin to focus on the messenger you were, you are headed for trouble. Now, I might remind in Zechariah 1, uh, there is a general message. Maybe I'll turn back there. A general message before Zechariah begins the real story about the scattering and how God is going to begin to solve it and the two witnesses in the church and the, the gathering and so on. He gives a general message here. <coughs> and remember that in time sequence, Zechariah began his message right in the middle of the book of Haggai. So, it was in the eighth month where Haggai began in the sixth month. It says in verse 2, in this general message, The Eternal has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say you to them, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Turn you to me, says the Eternal of hosts, and I will turn to you, says the Eternal of hosts. Now how many times and in how many ways and how many scriptures have we used to show that very message here for the last over 12 years in this group alone? Actually the message started in 1996, but not to this group. The whole message has been turned to God with your whole heart so that He will turn to you. Now, that's what Zechariah starts with here. So he's saying, God has not been satisfied or happy with your fathers in the past. Don't be like them. Now, what did they do? Be you not as your fathers, and to whom the former prophets have cried, saying, (coughs) Thus says the eternal Host." Turn you now from your evil ways and from your evil doings, but they did not hear, nor hearken to me, says the Eternal. So he sent the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, all of them. I think Jeremiah says several times he sent them early, but they would not hear. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Well, they stoned most of them. See, God sent a message. And they couldn't get around the message, so they began to stone the messenger. They could find things wrong, maybe, with Jeremiah and with Ezekiel and with Isaiah and with the others. That's not hard to do. You can always find fault with a man, can't you? So you cannot afford to ever let you you get your mind on the messenger that he is too good or too great, or on a pedestal, or that he has human failings and weaknesses because then you tend to lose sight of the message. And that's what Zechariah is warning about here. Verse 6, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? Didn't the things that I sent the prophets tell them actually wind up happening to them? Yes, they did. And they returned and said, like as the Lord of hosts thought to do to us, according to our ways and according to our doings, so has he dealt with us. So God sent those prophets to tell us, here in the end time, what the message is. And the church didn't read it, didn't understand it, and all these messages God sent happened to us, didn't they? Now he's telling us to turn to him and to heed the voice of the prophets. Now, I'm not saying I'm a prophet, but God gave me understanding of what this message of the prophets is. And he commissioned me to go out and tell you and others who might wish to know what that is. And we have it on the website. Anybody in the world who wants to can read it. And some are beginning to respond to it. Those in Kenya in particular at the moment. So the message is there. But we need to be very careful, brethren, because we can err greatly. If you want to find fault with me, that's not hard to do. And you can discourage yourself and confound yourself and frustrate yourself to the point of impatience and quitting. If you just look at me. But I dare you to find that the message is wrong. Maybe I don't have everything right yet. I'm sure I don't. We are learning as we go. But this message that God gives to the church in Haggai and Zechariah cannot be denied. It will happen. Now, the timing is always tricky. God doesn't give us that. So, if we hear it, and it doesn't happen as fast as we thought, then we begin to get frustrated and impatient, and we begin to say, well, maybe that isn't so, or maybe that is wrong, or uh, maybe he doesn't know what he's talking about, or he has so many flaws he couldn't be being used by God to give a true message. You know, we did it with Herbert Armstrong, we can do it again, and the results will be the same. So let's understand Zechariah's warning and be careful in how we approach things. Uh, The church is here to help you in your relationship with God and to point you to your Father and hopefully get your relationship right with Him and with Christ Emmanuel. And he does say He will come and dwell with us. In other words, He will fulfill His name, God with us. There in Zechariah 2 it says it once he gets into the real message to the church. So, let us be careful, always, that we not put ourselves in position, or the position of Haman, and begin to discourage, frustrate, annul, uh, cause distrust uh, among the brethren, because we could be found to be fighting God Himself if we're not very, very careful. But instead, let us be part of The Mordecai effort to encourage, to strengthen, to help one another prepare as the bride of Christ, which is what we're instructed to do, that we help and strengthen, encourage, and help each other instead of dragging down. One is of Christ, the other is of Satan. And we need to be very careful which side of that line we're on, because the story is here about Haman's plot to caused division and frustration and death, and he died. Mordecai came out on top and lived, as did Esther, who became queen and was used to help save the Jews. Now, Esther represents the bride of Christ, and the bride, or the church of God, is here to help save the spiritual Jews. And God indeed says that He will draw a remnant to her once she is chosen and she will be used then to help feed and care for the needy, the widowed, the orphaned, because she herself has been orphaned by God putting her away uh, from Himself in Christ and turned us over to Satan just as they were turned over to Haman. Why? So that we might repent. When a child is separated from his parents, what does he want to do? He wants to fix it. He wants to be close to dad and mom again. If you send the child into the other room to think about his attitude and to get straightened out and to come back and be sweet and, and loving and kind and, and uh, obedient, he thinks things over and changes his attitude and things are rosy again. Or if he continues to pout and doesn't change his attitude, then he is kept in his room or other punishments are laid upon him until he becomes sweet and humble and meek and cooperative. That's the purpose of punishment. So God did turn the church over to Satan. He has devoured and split and divided and discouraged People right and left, and many have quit or become discouraged and or to the side, or they've died spiritually and given up altogether, or they are in famine and pestilence and don't understand what is going on. And most of the church that has survived does not understand and know what is going on. But God has showed us in these scriptures what's going on and what the ultimate end is. And boy, I'll tell you, those people in Kenya received it with joy and gladness to see that there is an answer to all this, that they could read and follow in their Bible and see what God is going to do. They are excited, and I love that. It is so wonderful to see people receiving it that way. Now, continuing here, Uh, In the book of Esther a little bit, I want to pick up another thought here, which I think is very important for us. Remember that uh, this is chapter 9, getting toward the end of the story. And and you're familiar with the story, I'm sure, how uh, the order was gone out to kill all Jews in the 127 provinces. And then when Esther pleaded before the king, as we are supposed to be pleading before Christ today that he turn his face back to us and begin to bless us and to give us favor in the golden scepter. And he does say to the, to the virgin daughter of Zion, you will be given first dominion and first leadership or rulership over the church. Right there in Micah 4, where it says your king and counselor is dead, and he's going to give it to one of the daughters because she is the fairest of them all. And I would hope we could be involved in that uh, so, that's what occurred, and then an order was given in the first month on the thirteenth day of the month. Interesting, the day before Passover, the edict was given to, be, to kill all the Jews in the king's purview. Now, that was to be carried out on Adar 13th, uh, the day before what became Shurim. So, the Jews, because the king's command could not be altered uh, to kill them, instead he issued the order, or allowed uh, Esther and Mordecai to issue it, that the Jews could defend themselves, that they could kill all their enemies, which they did. So they saved themselves in that sense, even as we are told to grow and produce the Spirit of God, and to give and to serve and to love, and in so doing, deliver ourselves. To save ourselves from Satan and this world and from those who would destroy us. God gives us that permission. And in fact, He is going to give the church, seven, even eight principal men in Micah 5, power over the Assyrian. And He will give the two witnesses power over any and everyone who tries to hurt them. And they'll be allowed to bring plagues uh, so much as they wish. So they will have power over the beast and the false prophet uh, until the final three and a half days when they're killed in the streets of Jerusalem. Uh, God will remove that power and they will be killed, as he says. But meantime, that power is given the church. So the story fits us. But here in uh, chapter 9, verse 10, when they were delivered... Was it nine ten? Where was I? I'm looking for the one that says that uh, that they fasted ahead of time for deliverance, and then when they were delivered. Oh, here it is, uh, chapter nine and verse twenty-two. As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies, and the month which was turned to them from sorrow to joy. Remember, Zechariah tells us if we keep the four fasts of the months, that they will be turned from fasts into feasts of joy. So the fasting that the Jews had been doing is now observed as feasts of joy because they were delivered. They don't any longer fast at Purim or before Purim because deliverance came. And once deliverance comes to the end-time church, and Zechariah is talking about the end-time church, then those fasts that we've been keeping through the year are going to be turned into feasts. I look forward to that. So turn from sorrow to joy, and from mourning into a good day. Christ says, blessed are those that mourn there in the Sermon on the Mount. And in Zechariah 12, I think it is, he talks about all the different tribes and their wives and their families mourning. He's talking about the church again, and how we are in mourning. Well, aren't we? If we have been separated from our husband-to-be, the father and the son, and turned over to Satan for the destruction until we repent, then we are in mourning. And all the groups, in that sense, are in mourning because they're not getting answers from God that they want. Nor are we. Or have we been. So we are still in mourning. Now, when God gives us deliverance, We will go from fasting and mourning to joy and happiness, just like they did. And of sending portions one to another and gifts to the poor. Bingo! God was looking for people who would fast and mourn for His deliverance. And when they were on the verge of deliverance or being delivered... Their thoughts were to the poor and the needy. So, part of even their feast was to take care of the poor, the needy. And that's why you were asked in this announcement to bring something small and expensive to use as a gift to, in type, do what is being done here. Now, we've emphasized lately, and many of you did fast, I did. Uh, after I read those scriptures in Isaiah 58 about the right kind of fast for the right kind of purposes. To help the poor, the needy, the widow, the orphan, to give what we have to the poor, and to stop the pointing finger of accusation. We must quit accusing. That is the second half of that. And if there are those who will not quit accusing, we have to get rid of them because God says there cannot be accusation and division and confusion because of finger-pointing and accusation. You cannot have peace under those conditions. So Isaiah 58 must be fulfilled. And even as in the story of Esther, those who would stand against, they had to be removed. Now, I I have these articles here, and I'm not going to take the time to go through them But this one is entitled, Purim, History Repeats Itself. And it shows that the ten sons of Haman were hanged. And the gist of the story is that they were killed on the days the Jews killed all their enemies. Haman and his ten sons were killed. But then part of Esther's request was that his sons be hanged the next day. Well, they were already dead, why hang them? (laughs) Well, hanging is ignominy. It is shame personified. So she wanted that done. But it has been interpreted by some Jews and others that it was also a prophecy that if anything like this would happen again in the future, that those men who perpetrated it would be hanged. And they quote different sources here to show that in the Hebrew, embedded within the story of Esther is the story that in the end times there would be ten men hanged who tried to destroy the Jews. Interestingly enough, the Nuremberg War Trials after World War II indicted twelve men uh, who were to be hanged on October 16, 1946. Now, one of those Uh, had escaped, and they couldn't find him, even though he was condemned to hang. So that reduced the number hanged to 11. Martin Bormann, I think it was, poisoned himself the day before the hanging, or the same day, whenever it was, so it only left 10. On October 16, 1946, 10 Nazi war criminals who had helped kill millions of Jews Were hanged. Now, I heard another story, and I've not had time to check this out, but it's quite interesting, and that is that if you take the ten sons of Haman, that is their names, and count the number of their names, like it says in Revelation, count the number of the beast 666, the number of a man, (coughs) in Hebrew, each letter of the alphabet has a numerical value. So if you take those ten names and give a number to each letter corresponding to the Hebrew uh, language, I was told that it adds up to ten, sixteen, nineteen forty six. I would, it would be really interesting if someone would check that out, because you can they have charts that show the numerical value of the Hebrew and then apply it to those Hebrew names. I don't know whether in the English translation or perhaps in the original Hebrew, it could be tricky uh, what it was that they counted up. Uh, that's just an aside. I don't know that it is true, but it would be certainly interesting that and, and here's why I, I say that. Because many people say, well, that's just an old story about the ancient Jews. Well, what if it can be shown in the embedded story, and perhaps even in the counting of the names of the sons of Haman, that it adds up to an end-time prophecy as well? And we know that not just the physical Jews are involved, but the spiritual Jews. And that's why I draw the analogy of Christ of Mordecai of the church. Esther is the queen or the bride of Christ. Haman is Satan and his henchmen who are there to divide and destroy and to conquer and to tear groups apart. Uh, Those fruits were there from Haman, and it has been throughout the church as well. So I think the story fits quite well. And now we are looking for God's deliverance. Well, interestingly enough, the day before Purim, was the day the Jews were to have died, to have been destroyed. That's today, the 13th of Adar. Uh, I think we're in the 12th month. Or, yeah, we're, we're, we're in the 12th month now. And tomorrow and Monday are represent the Feasts of Joy after that deliverance came, and they were able to save themselves from destruction. So I think there is a very important message there for God's church today in that we had better take whatever means are necessary to turn to God, to save ourselves from destruction, to plead with Him, to deliver us. And He says He will deliver His people in the end time. I I want to tie, let's see, yeah I have time because I spent so much time. I, I won't take much time with this. But I want to tie a couple more scriptures to this so that we understand how this could apply to us and what we need to do to pray for deliverance, okay? Now, we read Isaiah 58 last week, and the week before, really, uh, to show that we need to give what we have for the benefit of others who are in need. That is one of the keys, along with getting rid of the accusing finger, to God using us to repair the breach, remember, and to restore the paths to dwell in. So there's a breach between God and His church right now. Call it disfellowship, call it spewing, call it scattering, but there is a breach between the church and God, and none of the church anywhere is getting the kind of answers they want from God, because there is a breach in the relationship. So it is clear in Isaiah 58 that that breach needs to be healed and that the people who will humble themselves and quit pointing the finger at each other and use what they have to help others will be the ones that help repair the breach between man and God. Okay? Now, let's examine that in uh, Isaiah 44 because it uses essentially the same language. Now here he's talking in Isaiah 44, and we've been over this before, but I want to do it now from a different standpoint. Verse 44, of, I mean, chapter 44, verse 7. And who is I shall call and shall declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come... Let them show to them. So he says, just as things were told the ancient people, the modern people need to be told as well. Fear you not, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time, and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. So there's only one true God. And only the true spiritual Jew today knows that true God. But we departed from Him in so many ways and set up our own idols, ourselves as idols, and were not committed to Him to the degree that He requires. So He spewed us out. And there is a section here, I'm not going to read it all to you, where it talks about those who put something ahead of God. Now, instead of making carved idols of wood, we put our way of life, materialism, entertainment, various things ahead of our relationship with God. Not that all things we might do for entertainment are wrong, but if they take our time to the point our relationship with God is compromised, then we do not have our priorities right, and we are not committed to God so much as we are to materiality and entertainment and the things that bring us pleasure in this life. And that is what upset God. And is why we have been separated. But He says, I don't have any other witnesses, people. So get rid of your idols. Repent. It's what the next message is here. And then on down in verse 21 and 22, I've read this before. Uh, you can review what I just said about the idols and the things we put before God, and we have to put it in modern terminology of things that we place ahead of God. Remember you, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant, I have formed you. You are my servant, O Israel, you shall not be forgotten of me. God's the one that instituted and raised up the church. And because of our inattention, he divided it, and now he's saying... Here is a prophecy of what is to come. Get rid of your idols and remember who made you. I have not forgotten you. Verse 22, I have blotted out as a thick cloud your transgressions and as a cloud your sins. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. So he's making a prophecy that out of the church he is going to redeem, he is going to save, he is going to help, he is going to forgive. And therefore, with the sin gone, the transgression gone, the breach can be healed. Okay? Sing, O you heavens, for the eternal has done it. We can't save ourselves. You know what? That's part of the problem when we get our mind on the messenger and off the message, just as it was with Herbert Armstrong. We put too much on the messenger, or we take too much away from the messenger, and we forget what we're there for, and we go astray We must. Uh, What I was going to say is if this group right here, if it depended on me to make all these things happen, we are scheduled for total failure. Do you understand that? I do. I've been preaching these things now for over 17 years and to this group alone for over 12 years. I can't make them happen, brethren. I can't fulfill them. I cannot fulfill our hopes and our dreams. This is God's project. It's not my project. It was only my project to bring you the information and to help you repair your relationship with God, as I said earlier. If it depends on me, we're done for. God has to begin to do the things He said. He will do. And they, that is in response to us doing our part. We have to turn to Him so that He can turn to us. And I do not believe we have sufficiently done that yet. And we are going through trial, trouble, and tribulation right now, and perhaps some chastening, to get us to repent totally and to turn to Him with all our heart so that the breach between the church and God can be healed. Now, there's hope in that. There's no hope in me. I'm only the messenger, and you can find a lot of fault with me if you want to. Get your mind back on the message. And on God, who can answer and do the things that we're reading about. So he tells us here, you're the only witnesses I've got, so repent and turn to me and get rid of all your idols. Put me first, then I will blot your sins out and redeem you. And then we can sing in joy, and our fasting and our mourning can turn to joy and happiness and singing to God. Break forth into singing, you mountains, O forests, and every tree therein, and so on. But now notice, let's read on down just a little more, because it's leading up to God working through Cyrus To show him the hidden treasures and the things of darkness that God is going to reveal that prove that He is God. But before he gets to Cyrus, he makes a very important statement. Verse 24 Thus says the Eternal, Your Redeemer, and He that formed you from the womb. I am the Eternal that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. He's pleading His case. Don't you understand I'm the supreme ruler of the entire universe? People wake up and realize who you're dealing with, is what he's saying. You're dealing with God that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes diviners mad, that turns wise men upside down or backward and makes their knowledge foolish. So God says you can dream up whatever you want to dream up, but I'll turn it upside down and you're going to wind up with egg on your face and look mighty stupid before this is over. Look to Him. Now notice, verse 26, that confirms the word of His servant and performs the counsel of His messengers. God says, I am going to fulfill all these messages I've sent by the prophets about the end-time church and the two witnesses and the remnant and building the temple and all those things that must yet be done. He says, I am going to confirm that message. And here it is. That says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, you shall be built. And I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Same message as Isaiah 58, that those who will take care of the needy and quit accusing one another will be the ones who repair the breach and restore the old waste places. And here, he gives us the same admonition. He's talking to the church. I'm going to confirm the message that has been given. He's going to confirm all these things we've read in the prophecies. They're going to happen. And the key is rebuilding desolate Jerusalem, both spiritually the church and the physical place, because it is uninhabited today. And also the cities of Judah, the congregations, and also, doesn't he say in Zechariah 2, that Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls with much men and cattle. So the old cities of Judah are going to be discovered and rebuilt. Then he goes in and begins to talk about Cyrus, who will say to Jerusalem, You shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. So the Cyrus of these scriptures is going to be shown the riches of God, as chapter 45 shows, and they will then be used to show who is God. So, it is up to us to go before God in mourning because of our lacks, to repent and get rid of all our idols, then He is going to remove our sins and transgressions like a cloud disappearing and begin to redeem us and bless us and use us to restore Jerusalem and the waste places of Judah. The message is the same wherever you go. Go to Zechariah 3. It says that Satan would withstand and stand against the end-time work of God. That He would try to destroy it and destroy the leadership of it. But God would stand with the leadership. And then it says down further that signs and wonders will begin, that the sin or iniquity of that people will be removed in one day. Sounds just like Isaiah 44. And then we would dwell in peace and prosperity under a vine and fig tree. I think we are being withstood by Satan right now who is trying to discourage, to frustrate, to destroy everything that we have tried to do. But I believe that in the long run, God is going to stand with us and Satan will be set aside because it says that the Lord resisted him. And the God will cause his work to be done. Now, we need to include ourselves in Isaiah 44 as witnesses that the true God is God. I don't know who all he'll include. He's going to bring together a remnant of the church, 10%. So we don't begin to represent that. But can we be part of it? I certainly hope so. There is much hope and encouragement in the story of Esther and how it parallels the church today. And it parallels all these scriptures that we've been reading about how God will deliver, He will forgive our sins, and He will begin to bless and bring plenty and peace and prosperity, and that we can rebuild the church and the temple, Jerusalem the church, and the true Jerusalem, according to Daniel 9, so that the abomination can be set there, and then he will deliver his people once again to Zion, the place of refuge. So the story is quite clear. And I see a very important reason to keep Purim before God. Uh, because there is so much to learn there on the spiritual level for us. So let's understand today is a day that we were to be destroyed uh, in in type. And that we need to make whatever effort is required to be sure we're not destroyed and that we live to serve God. And that our fa- our mourning and our fasting can turn to feasting, which is what the next two days represent in which we will keep in type. And one of these years, maybe at Purim, we will be able to fast because God has removed our sins and begins to bless. So there's a great story and a great hope here. And I wanted to review that and maybe tie a few things in with it just as we go into Purim.